So, Danny. Hello. Tom. Hello. How did you two come across each other? We hugged. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I officially met you being at the Ralph Lauren event. Yeah. So, I knew a lot about you through both Instagram and our friend Tegan. So, Tegan is What Willie Cook's girlfriend and she works at the Rick. I first came across her because she invited me to, first of all, it was Pity. It was, um, was it, no, it wasn't Pity, it was... Oh, we were at the Venice Film Festival. Venice. And then I got invited to the Watchers of Knightsbridge event. Tegan was very official. I didn't quite know, like, who I was chatting to, so I just Googled Tegan the Rick, came up with her Instagram, and then I realised <laughs> it's all a facade. She's... The daftest lass you could meet in the nicest way. So yeah. Squiggle is, yeah, I mean, if you've met Will and you've heard Will's podcast. Yeah, she was saying you need to get Tom on, and then I thought that'd be fantastic. And then met you officially at the Ralph Lauren event, started chatting, and then, uh, yeah, straight away you were on it. So Yeah, I mean, I didn't hesitate. Firstly, it's very flattering to be asked. You know, it's, it's funny because you, you, you see kind of the back catalogue of who you've had, and one wonders sort of how can I contribute to the sort of continuing success of the podcast. And so being asked was obviously a first session, a delightful one, and so I'm very flattered to Pleasure. To be, to be asked over to the great borough of Shoreditch. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to dig into, you know, how you got into what you're doing. Yeah. And your title is editor at the Rake. Yeah, editor-in-chief and uh, head of brand as well, which is sort of a... Because the Rake is kind of sort of slightly, not graduated, but sort of evolved to be more than just a magazine. And so my job is sort of to kind of make sure that that is facilitated in a kind of proper way. So before we find out how you got there then, mm -hmm. what is the Rake? Well, it was initially conceived in 2008 as a, uh, a magazine that, I guess to some extent, rebelled against the prevailing trend of magazines, which was to appeal to young people. It was started by a guy called Waco, who in, he was, he was about to turn 40 in 2008, and thought, you know what, when I read these magazines, they, you know, they're not bad, but they just don't appeal to him. Yeah. And it sort of made him feel like, as a guy who was turning 40, he was no longer relevant, because you need to be relevant to be if you you, well, if you need to have a six pack, you need to have sort of low hanging jeans, you need to be sort of lots of streetwear as a, to be relevant. <laughs> and he would look at the models, he would look at the kind of cover stars, and think, you know, when he when he he, he thought when he was growing up, and he's he's from Singapore, but he um, he grew up in the U.S. And he said, like, you know, I grew up with people like you know Humphrey Bogart and Cary Grant. You know, those guys, I thought they were cool, but I didn't think of them as cool in their twenties. I thought of them as cool in their forties and fifties. Yeah. That that was their heyday. So this idea that you sort of had lost relevance as a man as you got older was anathematic to him and he was like no 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 so um he thought i'm going to make a magazine that's sort of a call to arms for for, for aging gentlemen across, across the world and here i sit as a 35 year old slightly creaky um uh, but I, I aligned with that vision yeah so the rake is is, is a magazine that, that that kind of approaches that but also does it in a way that pays great respect and reverence to the english language so we love the opportunity to write lots of long-form articles in the way that some magazines like vanity fair do but other men's magazines don't necessarily do as much of. We love to tell stories largely about dead people, but you know, people who, who <laughs> live lives of a very particular, uncompromised manner. People who could probably no longer exist. You know, they, 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 the, the kind of post-war consensus was that basically everyone could do what the hell they wanted. So you saw these characters emerge from that who had the most extraordinary lives and, and affairs and relationships and, and just encounters and all these things. And the, the imagery that comes out of that is the most romantic and, and, and in comparison 
today's sort of imagery of sort of celebrities and stuff, it just doesn't even compare to what came before. So we kind of want to tap into that and that rich well of material to illustrate a magazine with. And also talk about craft. So it, at the very heart of the rake, it's, it's about craft. It's about people who dedicate their lives to an art, a particular craft and passion of theirs, a vocation that, that they then offer up as a service to other people. They say, I, you know, I'm probably one of the greatest people in the world at this particular job and I will offer it to you. That's kind of, in a nutshell, what or, or who we are the kind of martinet for. We're the kind of flag-waving magazine that highlights these people and talks about these people because no one else is doing it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and at the very heart of it, you know, craft is, is, is very much at the heart of, of all of that for sure. So that's really the rake. I'd say the rake is it's it feels very quintessentially British. So it feels like traditional it's traditional values, I guess. So I know what you mean when it was saying um about not feeling relevant after you hit a certain age. But it does still keep that Sorry, it says the twenty-five year old very no, relevant. You know what I mean? Man. <laughs> Like the title, because so uh, Rick is—it's still quite an easy read, where it feels very cool and elegant. It's the same way that like Aston Martins will appeal to a young kid as well. Like they're not going to go out and buy one. Do you know what I mean? It's—it's it's still something to. I can't how to. I, 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 yeah, it's, it's I think something it's, to aspire to. Yes, I think the thing is, is that, you know, aspirational stuff, you know, something's only aspirational if it's good. Mm. Um, and I think that the luxury for me is the bridge between art and practicality. That's, yeah. that, that's, that's what my definition of luxury is. So the things that are made, of, yes, look, they are expensive, and we're talking about expensive things here, but ultimately, they are subjectively and objectively good and yeah. lovely looking. And, and I think that it's where there's that dividing line between, you know, fashion and luxury. You know, it is it is because this stuff is made. And interestingly, I will say, you know, I was recently reading about the fact that Bernard Arnault is the richest man in the world. Now, this guy owns a company which has companies that make things by hand and then get sent to shops that people sell to people. So they're, they're, it's all people-powered stuff. Oh. You know, this is not a tech company. Yeah. yeah. You know, and tech companies are meant to be the future. And yet the richest guy in the world is the guy that owns companies where people make stuff by hand. That for me is interesting. Yeah. It means that we as humans just have this continuing desire for, and, and, and attraction to it. I think that's the thing is like we all desire things that like there is a story behind. Yeah. And that is why, you know, why you do buy like a Louis Vuitton case because sure. you are, you see the you see the videos of the ateliers and mm. you know things like that and you you're buying into that whole story and that and that history and the years of practice and I suppose that's the thing where tech in what we're talking about in regards to like it being the future is still so short so there's no history there's no storytelling there whereas you know something like LVMH there is so much loyalty history and you know you you can trust their products yeah to a certain extent and there's a macro to that and also a micro because then you get tailors and things you know who are small yeah. brands you know single well one or two people and again people there's there's a loyalty factor to it so we're going to get into like, you know, the uh, the clickbait viral stuff of sure. like most expensive cigars, yeah. watches. <laughs> but like at what stage in your life did you sort of start developing this passion for, I think, we, we, you know, we call it luxury. We call yep. it the rakish nature. Yeah, sure. When did that come to you? Did you come out of the womb with a cigar in hand? Pretty, pretty much. I mean, really, really it's my dad's fault. My dad is a very, very understated but elegant man. He wasn't, he wouldn't have been sort of interested in kind of playing with colour and all those sorts of things. He had a very, very old fashioned British style. But it was immaculate. Yeah. And he had very high standards. And I think that as a father, he was kind of exacting as a dad too. And it's sort of, you know, one fed into the other. Particularly he had a shoe cupboard. And his shoe cupboard was this beautifully sort of varnished wooden 
cupboard. You opened it up and this sort of wash of smell came out and it was a mix of sort of, you know, polish and and just great leather and wool and because uh, his suits were up there. You know, there was just this lovely smell that came out. Mm. And just sort of, it just was an old fashioned smell. And I absolutely loved it. So I would kind of go in and I'd open the cupboard and I would just like the smell. And I just remember just feeling connected to it. But he had this collection of really beautiful shoes, which he kept amazingly well polished. After a certain age, so I, when I was in my teens, I would steal these shoes. And like, what I would do <laughs> is I would I would wear them to like the pub. Even though I was wearing like a t-shirt and jeans, other than that, I would wear these shoes to the pub because I felt at that age that if I was the smartest person in the room, then somehow that would make me okay. That would, I would somehow fit in in the room and I would have my place and I would, I felt comfortable in myself if I knew that that was the case. Even though nobody in the room had any idea about these shoes, it, it didn't matter. It, it was about how I felt. Yeah. And that was when I kind of started to figure out what style meant, is that it isn't about what other people think when you walk in the room. It is about how you feel when you walk into a room. Are you gonna feel comfortable in yourself or not? And so everything is in life is a sort of progression, you know. It, so so it started with the shoes and then worked its way up, really. So do you still have these shoes? Yes, I do have a pair of them. I don't have all of them. Um, it's actually very bad for you to wear other people's shoes. Oh. Yeah, and so, you know, you can really, really affect your back. And my dad recently, he's now quite old, he's in his 80s. Well, no, he's 80. Yeah. And he he, said, he, he, he passed me a pair of his shoes recently. And I and I loved them, but I wore them for a day and I was, my back wasn't kidding, my knees <laughs> were kidding, my hips were kidding. And I was actually like, I just can't do this. So yeah, it's, it's not particularly good for you, but the sentiment remains. Of course. So what kind of brands were these then? So they were basically all Cleverly, basically. So Cleverly uh, are yeah. currently in, in Royal Arcade, but they've had various permutations over the years. So before they were Cleverly, they were at New England and before that they were at Tushek. And so, you know, they've just sort of been placed in uh, different spots across sort of Mayfair and St. James's over the years. Yeah. So now they're obviously their own brand under their own name. And they were, they, they were Benchmade, they were, they were bespoke shoes. Yes. So they're of the very highest quality. And so, you know, again, good education and sort of understanding the difference. For someone who'd be interested in bespoke shoes, but really doesn't have the budget, yeah. What would you recommend as like viable options? Uh, loads. I mean, look, Craig Cleverly's done an absolutely genius turn by being a brand that does make absolutely, you know, handmade sort of bespoke shoes, which are very expensive, but then they're ready to wear options and no less expensive than half of the stuff you'll find on, uh, for trainers on Mr. Porter. Yeah. You know, so, you know, it's like, what, uh, 400, 500 quid for, for a race wear pair of shoes. But, you know, I've, I've been on Mr. Porter. I've seen the expensive shoes on there. And these, these are all made in Northampton. And so there's a real uh, authenticity behind it. Yeah. And so uh, so there's that Crockett & Jones as well. So Crockett & Jones are actually the kind of the white label brand for most, a lot of British shoemakers. So what you'll find is whenever there's a ready to wear pair of shoes for British brands, they've often been made by Crockett & Jones in a white label manner. So they have this huge factory in Northampton and they're great shoes, but they have their own label as well. Is that so that say brand X can still say made in Northampton, sort of handmade in Northampton kind of things, whereas they don't actually have the factories themselves? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, okay. you know, these are, these are not, there, there are not that many of these anymore. So, yeah, that's basically it. Slightly off topic. The reason why okay. I Go ahead. It. What happened? 2009, Tom. So, you know, you're wearing, you're wearing your dad's shoes to the pub and you start start going to work. And you're the most stylish man in the room, except for two people. John and Edward. Oh, fuck. Have you found a picture of me with Jedward? I <laughs> <laughs> haven't got a photo. But a little birdie tells us that you worked in production on The X Factor in the year 2009, <laughs> which is the year of Ollie Murs, Stacey Sullivan and Jedward. 
How did that come about? So yeah, yeah. Before I got into magazines, I worked in television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The look of so, fear on your face as we were talking. <laughs> because I didn't know there was a picture of me and Jedward. Like there, there, there are some floating around. So yeah, I um, uh, yeah, I worked. So I worked for the X Factor. I was meant to join the army. That didn't really happen because I, I sort of picked up some bad habits at university that that, <laughs> that precluded me from doing such things. And I found myself working at something called the Farm Group, which is a post-production house for TV because I always had a creative bent and I always wanted to kind of do something creative and I thought well you know my foot's in the door you know and working post-production basically I was making tea and coffee for the producers and at sort of lunch or breakfast or dinner whatever whatever time I was doing my shift I would be going into the edit suites with the uh, where there'd be the producer directors and the editors and say you know what do you want for supper and they would give me their order and then I'd go off and get it so that's basically yeah. that was my job so it turns out I did it quite well I've never had a problem with authority and I never had a problem with kind of being of service to other people and being useful to other people. I think it is useful yeah. to be useful to other people. I think that's a really good tip and trick for anyone young is that make yourself useful to other people. Don't don't try and necessarily be a leader from the from the get-go. Yeah. Be useful to leaders. That's a good that's nice. a good start. And so I would go and, and do all of this and I would do it kind of with a smile on my face and then so that was the Alexandra Burke yes. X Factor year. <laughs> The following year, they were like, Tom, do you want to come on the road with us for the next season? So that's oh. so that's when I ended up going on the road, doing the whole season and, and making TV gold. <laughs> <laughs> so what were you wearing? Well, okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to fit in with the other kids who were doing the whole running thing. And that was very much the heyday of the sort of skinny jean and the kind of very white plimsoll era. <laughs> that was, the, I don't know what the necessarily is. It's the indie, indie, it gets the brought indie, up a lot. In the indie it gets era, up a lot. exactly, yeah. The, yeah, so there was a lot of listening to Block Party and, you know, bands like that in the background. I went to office and bought myself a couple of pairs of those just to kind of, you know, wear and, you know, feel like I was sort of, you know, in with the crowd. So so yes, yeah, so that's what I'd be wearing. I mean, when you go on on the road with the X Factor, you have to wear like the stash. So you have an X Factor T-shirt, an X Factor yeah. hoodie. I wore a pair of jeans and, and you know, <laughs> trainers. But yeah, so you, you kind of you, there is a uniform you're given. Where were the jeans from? Uh, Levi's at the time. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's still quite traditional. Yeah, so I so I haven't worn a pair of jeans now for many, many, many years because I'm just sort of a big guy and I think jeans don't work as well for kind of big guys. I'm, I, you know, I'm six foot four, so I've got nice long legs, but I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm not lanky. And I found ever ever since I discovered pleats, that kind of changed my life and, you know, <laughs> jeans don't come with pleats. So so these are actually, these are actually denim. Oh, uh, yeah, But they're just... denim trousers, which are rather nice, actually. I, I wear them extremely often, but yeah. So it's just like your kind of go-to uniform. If someone was to dress like you, yeah. what would you say are the essentials? Definitely a navy blazer, a white shirt, and a pair of trousers rather than jeans. And that could be anything from flannel, chino, whether it's wool or cotton, doesn't really matter. Just something smart and a nice pair of shoes. I think that suede's a really good starting point because suede's cheaper than leather. I'm big on shoes. Shoes is a really big thing for me because I, I sort of think that they can ruin a look. Yeah. And you find people, they look immaculate, but then you look at their shoes, it just sort of ruins everything. Yeah, I, th I think that if you you got to get the essentials right first. I I, I wouldn't say I'm, even my guy called Terry Hastie has been my tailor for 15 years he even told me that I was extremely boring with you know with, with how with my outfits and because I because I because I really like my navy and I really like my greys and I just think that they're the kind of classic go-to's and so if somebody wanted to be look like me which I sort of vehemently <laughs> deny could ever happen I um I would suggest that's a good start but bear in mind I did have a Vans stage at school uh, you know we want to talk about Jedward we love Jedward on this podcast yeah, that's yeah, why we sure. wanted to bring it up yeah, 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 it. <laughs> but um you know someone who's probably a bit more important in your life. Who is Nick Folkson? How did they 
uh, impact your life. Have you done your research, haven't you, colleague? So <laughs> Nick, Nick, Nick is the probably the most prolific uh, and influential journalist for men's luxury in the world. And he was my first editor. And he is a very, very important person in my life. He's not an, he's, he's not a straightforward person. He's quite a difficult person. He doesn't, he doesn't get on with everybody. But he and I struck a report. And I, as I say, I was useful to him. And I just sort of, I followed the, the rubric that basically Nick's really easy to get on with if you do exactly what you're told which is sort of you know it's quite it's fairly straightforward um, so that's what I did but every Sunday he and I would have breakfast and he would give me all the sort of tricks of the trade that he basically learned and so we would just talk about watches suits magazine making you know cigars the whole lot because he was he is or is still the ex great expert at it and was the first to kind of write about the stuff back in the late 80s because nobody was talking about men's luxury it just it just was it was not a go-to nobody would talk about tailoring I think because it, it you know with Cool Britannia everything became a bit uncool to talk about anything that was regarded as sort of antediluvian or traditional and so anyone who wanted to write about tailoring probably gets short shrift from any editor because really there was you know streetwear brands to talk about and tracksuits yeah but yeah so that's that's so that's sort of Nick in a nutshell he's an extraordinary writer beautiful dresser I would say probably the best dressed man in the world that's that's kind of my okay. straight up opinion but I wouldn't ever suggest anybody try and dress like Nick <laughs> it's a very very personal his style is is really idiosyncratic. How would you describe it? I mean, he would hate this, but he it, it is really the kind of the old fashioned dandy. Yeah. You know, really. I mean, I mean, very very easy to spot from a mile off. <laughs> but at the same time, he's very intelligent with it. So the way he he does color coordinations with his pocket squares and his tie and his socks and his shoes, the whole lot is all immaculately thought through. And that's the same as whether he's wearing this sort of green or pink. He's got this pink and blue, I think it's a Prince of Wales check suit, that is just the most unbelievable thing to look at. And he does that beautifully with a tie with sort of pink polka dots and sort of pocket square that kind of coordinates beautifully. But at the same time, if he wears a navy suit and he walks into a room, he still looks absolutely, <laughs> everyone's like, that, is, that looks absolutely amazing, which is an art. You know, so with Nick, you're talking about like his style. You're not talking about fashion, you're talking about his personal style and yeah. how it's actually very true to him. That's why you're saying people don't try to replicate yeah. it. And you're also talking about how it's not potentially your style in regards to like the colours and things like that. I couldn't do it. Do you look at people, you, you dress very traditionally, Yeah. do you look at people sometimes on the street and you love their style but it's just totally not you or are you very much like, if it's not like sort of suiting, rakish look, you just don't get it at all? No, 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 it's, it's the former. I, 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 I am convinced that style is a, character plays such a big part of style and I think that there are people who, whether they're sort of a bit more rock and roll, whether they're, you know, the mods or whether, well actually their no, mods quite a sort of, actually quite a sartorial um, movement, but um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think that, you know, okay, there's a guy called Mike who works at the Rake, okay? Now, he and I, style-wise, do not see eye to eye. Like, oh, I don't mean we get fights about it, but like, like we, there, there's just no link to it. But God, he looks cool. He's from um, Los Angeles. He just he just looks amazing every time he comes in. But it's it's miles away from anything truly sartorial. Yeah, is it, so we're going to talk about like some of the people that have graced the covers, stuff like that. But is there a celebrity that you're like, you know, it's not my style, but they look a hundred percent all the time. Jay Z. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. He's really cool. He's really cool. Absolutely nails it. I mean, the real difficulty is though is that celebrities often styled rather than have their own style. Yeah. And that really, for me, is a little bit of a block for me to kind of emotionally attach myself to these people in terms of their style and kind of feel, totally agree, yeah. feel like I want to kind of keep seeing what it is they're wearing. There are some exceptions. Chris Pine Cover is star. obsessed with tailoring. He has a personal obsession with tailoring. He wears everything from 
Sexton, you know, to, to Rubenacci to, you know, to, you know, he, he really has a go. And you'll see, and you'll see with his recent pictures, he just looks absolutely amazing. But he, he, he is a totally obsessed with it. Like he really loves it. And so his approach to it is personal rather than style. I feel like Chris Pine over the last year has really penetrated the mainstream press for his style. Now he's appearing on like GQ's Best Dress and you know, it's very much it looks like it's his personal style. Yeah. Whereas there's like, you know, I'm thinking of like a couple of rappers who people really like put some reverence on, but you know they have star stylists and quite big stylists. Yeah, for sure. Like I think it yeah. can help and you can see, especially with some rappers, how they used to dress before, then when they had a stylist and you can kind of see their transition into having their own style and choosing <laughs> their own bits and working with stylists rather than just being Yeah, styled. and I don't begrudge that as a journey actually. I mean, you know, when, you know, if people uh, don't have time to necessarily develop their own sense of style but then work with amazing stylists and then come to understand what it is that yeah. because the point is is that when and, and I'm and I'm, I place so much emphasis on this the point is is when you put something on you want to walk out the door feeling <sighs> that sense of relief of comfort of that <laughs> sense of like okay I've, I've, I've kind of I feel I feel like when I get on the tube and I feel like when I get into the office and I, I feel comfortable in myself style plays such a huge role into that and I think that even people who say that they don't care about style that says something about them yeah. and I think that when but for people who connect to clothes in, in a subjective way, who it changes their mood. I think I think that that the number that pe people is quite high. So it's really important that people get get a chance to sort of experiment without being kind of put down and made to feel sort of silly for for having a go. What would be your kind of not guilty pleasure? But what would you dress in if? sartorialism wasn't around. If you had to dress up and you were you were banned from it for 24 hours, what would you go for? Yeah. So I've, I've appeared recently in, in a couple, uh, I think in interviews places by David Gandhi, who has referenced me because he's got this brand called Wellwear. Yes. And he's referenced me a few times, like even Tom Chamberlain wears it. Um, <laughs> and it's actually true. And I, 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 I said in a quote that Wellwear is not home turf for me, but it's all I wear at home because uh -huh. it kind of is. I kind yeah. of do. I also have children. And so my outfit goes up on this ballot stand. Yes. And then... Um, the iconic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I have... Then I have, basically I have to wear things that, that can get messy. Yeah. Because uh, otherwise it's just going to be a, a, a literal shit show. And so <laughs> I... Um, so, 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 you know, and, and what, you, don't, you, don't, you don't need that stress in one's life, you know. Uh, so I, I do often wear, as you might be surprised, you, you know, T-shirts and sort of comfy trousers and things just to kind of get and around the house. tech fleece tracksuit. Yeah, my wife's also really tight with the heating, so lots of like sort of warm stuff. <laughs> you know, like the rise in, you know, I've had a look at well wearing, is there's like sweats and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And obviously during COVID, you know, the rise in sweatpants sales, like, you know, skyrocketed. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to call them sweatpants either. Tra tracksuit, joggers. joggers, yeah. yeah. Um, so is that like something that you would wear? And I've, you know, we, we've seen it sort of, there's a merging of worlds of like Ivy League with that sort of sweatpants culture. It's Brands all linked. Like ALD Absolutely. and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Sporty and Rich as well. It's it's the, yeah, the Ivy League, but then um, but I've never really wore sweatpants at all. And now you see me, I got for coffee and sweatpants and Ugg boots. And I thought, <laughs> what have I turned into? Because it was, was it Karl Lagerfeld who said, if you wear tracksuits outside, you've given up. <laughs> it was something along those lines. And it kind of always It'd be either him or Tom Ford, uh, we one or the other. Yeah, it always stuck by me. And then now I think, well, living in Shoreditch, I think since the pandemic, I've been a bit more open to it. But yeah, do you ever catch yourself in a pair of Ugg boots, Tom? So not quite, but I do have 
like these these sort of snow boots by Sorrel that are incredibly comfortable that I sort of clunk around in if I need to go out. And it's, you know, when the, especially when the snow hit recently, that was incredibly useful. I've got a couple of pairs of trainers that are um, useful to sort of head out in. My trouser-wise, I have a lot of like run-around chinery type things that, yeah. that I would go out in. I'm not really an intrinsic guy in, in in that sense. I don't no. necessarily have, but um, at the gym, I am. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. What would be your trainer of choice then? Okay, so I have um, a great pair of Ralph Lauren polo trainers that I really like. Nice. It, it, I'm sorry. It, I, th- there's going to be a lot of Ralph Lauren in this chat because <laughs> Ralph Lauren had become that kind of thing for me to, to sort of play the sort of sartorial card without necessarily wearing a suit. Yeah. So yeah. Just to jump back in, you know, you, yeah, yeah. Your, your journalism. Yes. And then you've been headhunted by the rake, or you've applied. Then at 2014, you've moved over to the rake. Yes. What was like the brief? Because as you said, it was a, a man in his 40s set it up to yeah. sort of shine a light on men in their 40s. Yeah. You were in your 20s. Yeah, I was. What What was your brief? What was your take on it? How did you sort of go, I'm going to approach this in an interesting way? So I really understood it as a concept because I, I'd seen it before I started working there. It wasn't sort of a new magazine to me before. Um, but what, what happened was ultimately the, the, the magazine had grown it was based in Singapore at the time and it had just grown in its readership quite fast because I think a lot of men suddenly felt like there was a sort of solution to their kind of magazine void. And so I, when I when I was leaving Finch's Quarterly Review, which is where I worked with Nick, it was Nick that said, you need to go work at the rake. So he, he knew Way and he introduced me to Way. And they were looking for a deputy editor to, to kind of be on the ground in London with an editor and, you know, create the magazine. Now, I was, it was my favourite magazine at the time. So I was really delighted. And I thought, to be honest, I, you know, I could go to the interview, but this, I think they're going to, I had a lot of imposter syndrome with it. I thought they're going to figure me out. And <laughs> I'm going to be uh, ever so slightly, I mean, I won't pass the probation, I think is what, what, what I thought really. And then I, so, so, went for the interview the interview was a really nice long interview it was about an hour and a half and Wei and I just seemed to kind of click and they hired me so as I said I didn't need that kind of rake elevator pitch I did get it and I think that just sort of came across the interview so I sort of was able to talk about it and I think that I didn't go in thinking I need to sort of change this because as I say it was my favorite thing and I sort of didn't really read it thinking oh gosh they could do better here <laughs> except for the covers. That was where I thought there could be some improvement made because at the time it was CEOs and creative directors of luxury brands. Uh. Now, if you want advertising, having the CEOs of luxury brands is probably quite a good call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, because the, the, you know, you sort of feed the ego for a bit, but I don't think that's a long term solution. So, I went in as deputy editor. There was this interregnum of the editorship. So, I kind of just sort of filled the role and after a year got offered it. But it sort of went from there. So, whilst as deputy in that first year, that's when I kind of started bringing in the, the celebrity things I managed to convince them to change it up a bit who was the first one that you put on the cover then Samuel Jackson oh wow oh, just a, just a <laughs> kind of a small one to that one yeah yeah it's a good start it's a good start <laughs> Uh, what were you wearing to the interviews then? Well, okay, so, you know, that, that, that's the interesting thing about all these things, is that it's very difficult to, to interview these people in person because they're mostly in Los Angeles. Yeah. In fact, he was in Telluride in Colorado shooting The Hateful Eight. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it was just the fashion editor at the time, and Wei flew over because Wei wanted to do the interview, which is fair. Yeah. So he, he went over and did it, and then they went off into Los Angeles did another photo shoot. Actually, it was a really cool photo shoot with kind of skate it was guys who were sort of skateboarding models wearing suits skateboarding in Los Angeles it was really cool I'll show it to you so so yeah so that was my first one and it went down extremely well there was proof of concept 
yeah. there. But that being said, you get one good cover doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have to kind of fight the good fight with Hollywood to get continually good covers. It was, you know, it's, it's been a sort of consistent struggle. I've done a couple of interviews in person now. Uh, I've, 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 I've now booked, I think, 48 celebrity covers. I've done 50 issues and we, so there's only Prince Charles, or King Charles now, Majesty, um, <laughs> uh, who, who we did, so we did a cover with him that was a sort of an unpublished picture that I had to get permission from Clarence House to use and stuff. So that, that, that was quite a fun little journey. Oh, we, there was one issue with Brunello Cuccinelli that I did do. That was just the one before Samuel Jackson. That, um, so yeah, so that was the yeah that was the opening gambit. Samuel Jackson. And what would be the highlight? Would you say? Because I did see you eating pizza on a yacht with. Uh... Is it Matt Damon? Matt Damon. I mean, that's that's <laughs> fairly unbeatable. I mean, that's that's fairly good. I mean, yes. I mean, that is a great. That is, yeah. I mean, that is a great thing. I mean, that 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 yeah. That those. I mean, yes. So, the, the in all honesty, if I'm going to get deep with you. I had a three-hour interview with Josh Brolin. It was meant to be an hour. It turned into three. And we yeah. uh, were both parents of children around the same age. And we went off script a lot. Yeah. Off the record and off script. And <laughs> he won't mind me saying this, but we ended up in floods of tears together talking about something specific. Just, we'd never met. Yeah. And we were over Zoom, just crying <laughs> to each other. And we've been friends ever since. It's been brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so strange I think maybe because like yeah it is strange yeah it's true <laughs> because the break is like a niche publication I suppose when they're talking to you they're not talking like they do in a press junket where they have 15 minutes and they regurgitate the same <clears throat> questions so I can I can understand why maybe you get that openness from certain people because you know they've definitely chose to say yes to the rake rather than their publishers yeah. going like here's another one yeah, yeah and before you walk in the room you know this is Tom from the rake this is you know it's about suiting it's like okay yeah fine so I, can, I understand why potentially that can happen I mean, that's still mental but yeah yeah no, I, I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing because the 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 kind of publicist game you have to play is is quite um, full on you know I've been to Los Angeles a couple of times to to, to meet them and and sort of pick the rake and just you know make it clear as what it is that we would do with their talent it is a bit like you know publishers trying to get advertising spend it's you know you you know they have an asset so we're trying to get that asset so what are we offering you know what is it that we're offering and ultimately to a large extent the rake isn't there to screw over covers or screw over the actors that's the point we don't we put people on the cover because we want to basically say this is our guy um, or girl, because we 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 have uh, women on the cover. We want to say, you know, the, these are the people that we respect, we admire. We they they kind of have our values. They they have our sense of sort of cool and 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 the, the, we 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 admire them for who they are and and the hard work that they put into their careers and their talent. So what we don't do is look for kind of salacious quotes that we misinterpret it for the Daily Mail. We don't do that. Yeah. And publicists really appreciate that. What we also do is get really good photographers to make them look incredibly cool. We did Jonah Hill. We got Kamel Najani. You know, these guys who are, who are kind of considered sort of Hollywood beta males. You know, that, that would be their kind of brief. And obviously they've emerged out of that. And so when they emerge out, it's like, well, come to the rake. You know, we, we will present you as that. And it's easy to make Chris Pine look absolutely amazing on the cover because he's an incredibly good looking guy. Easy to make Samuel Jackson. Easy to make Josh Brolin and Matt Damon. You know, these guys are you know action heroes and they're 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 sort of you know they're, they're handsome and all those sorts of things but the, the 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 whole thing with the rake is that we will kind of take them and make everybody look at it and go wow they look so fucking cool 
And that's the whole point. And unsurprisingly, Hollywood really liked that. <laughs> Obviously, we want to talk you know, more about the rake, find out more about it, and you know, get some advice for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But before we do that, we need to you know, bring you back down to, to earth a little bit with, <laughs> with our question here. What is the worst outfit you've worn or trend you've been part of? I used to wear consistently at school a Denver Broncos <laughs> shirt <laughs> with... Terrell, there's a, there was a running back for the Denver Broncos called Terrell Davis. So I had Davis on the back, and I wore with that a pair of bootcut jeans and Vans. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I've seen the Denver Broncos. That's how I went to go watch. It was, uh, yeah, it was the NFL came over to, uh, to London. Yeah. So I spent. Did, did you get a shirt? Yeah, I, I can't remember if I got a Broncos or the Eagles shirt. <laughs> Big fan then, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's somewhere to get around. I've just thrown away the flag as well. Um, no, it's Panthers versus Broncos, yeah. So it's And I wore a leather jacket over top of it if it was cold that was too short for the shirt, so the shirt would kind of hang out the bottom. Oh, God. So you almost created like a boot-cut shirt as well. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I like it. It's the, the symmetry. You look yeah. like a Christmas tree in a way. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. That does sound quite tragic. What were the colours? So obviously black leather jacket, it's sort, of, it's, sort of navy, it's sort of a navy blue and orange jeans jeans. And then the, the vans were kind of this sort of beige and green, this sort of faded green, horrible thing. <laughs> so now that we've uh, ruined your career, yeah. <laughs> let's try and... Uh, let's try and but you've given me street cred, so it's fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll try and backtrack a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, I think maybe we should probably start off with you know, what Tom's wearing now, because, you know, yeah. this is the, there's an item you're wearing right now that is definitely going to be coveted by most of our audience, I feel. Yeah, I know I, your outfit. I thought I had to have some sort of flex when I'm coming to the an audience, all of whom would think that, well, I don't, you know, there's so many mentions of Palace and Supreme and stuff in the podcast that I thought if I had an item of it, then I should wear it. And I do. Yeah, so I have the Ralph Lauren Times Palace collaboration polo bear jumper. Doing a kickflip. Doing a kickflip. <laughs> if that's what it's called, then I'll take it. Uh, and do you want to, do you want to, do you want to run, us, run us through uh, what, what you're wearing with it? Because obviously you've okay. mentioned the trousers. Like what brand are they? So they're, they're, they're bespoke by Tom Sweeney. And so I, I really into the idea of separates. And... The, the, that's a big tailoring trend at the moment that people aren't necessarily getting suits made. They're getting a pair, a jacket and a pair of trousers that are of different fabrics or different colours made as an outfit because I think that, you know, if you want to go for a date, you, I, I wouldn't suggest wearing a suit. Yeah. But you could wear something really that looks really elegant and amazing. It would just need to be separate. So it's just more functional for, for life. So I got a jacket and these trousers made and I wear them all the time. So they're kind of, they're very well worn, but they're they're really good fabric. I mean, that's the great thing about fabric is that if you get a really good one, it, it lasts a long time. And uh, so I'm wearing London Sock Company socks, which are sort of mustardy and meant to match the skateboard. I'm wearing Cleverly shoes and shirt is um, Bespoke Emma Willis. Mm. There you go. What are you wearing, George? Doesn't matter. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> And can we, can we get a run through of jewellery? Because I want to, um, can we end on the watch? Yeah. And we can start talking a bit, bit about watches. Because yeah, we, we don't actually talk about jewellery a lot. We've started as a podcast, as friend, a friendship group, we've started to get quite into watches. I think that's what happens as your style starts to evolve, you know. So, yeah. And, you know, Danny has a couple of watches. I've got a watch. <laughs> Had. <laughs> so, yeah, if you could like, sort of run through the jewellery and what yeah. it means. Uh, so my watch is a Rolex Datejust uh, from 1989. This was actually given to me by my father for my 30th birthday. Um, it was his and he's passed it down and it is a very very good everyday watch which i really really love and my rings so so people hate these rings 
because there's, there's sort of, I get so many comments on them. TikTok is just sort of, you know, there's basically a page against my rings on TikTok. Um, so, because what I do is I stack, the, so I have my signet ring, which is the, the otherwise known as the posh person's ring, which has my sort of family crest on it um, that my dad gave me on our, me and my, I have a twin brother, and so we both got on our 21st birthday. In fact, all of my Please, siblings. his name's Tim. No, thank you. Oh. Joe, Joe is his name. Behind it is my wedding ring which uh, is from Cartier that um, me and my wife got. I wear it stacked behind my signet ring and I wear another wedding ring on my wedding finger. There is a story behind this, which is basically that when we went to Morocco for a holiday, uh, we were engaged. And we were basically like, don't bring engagement ring to Morocco. My wife got 20 quid, a, a 20 quid um, sort of gold band, thin gold band from <laughs> Wolf and Badger and popped that on. So, so it was kind of, you know, so she was wearing something. And it re- looked really good and really chic on her. So I went and got sort of another pair of wedding, thin wedding ring, thin gold bands made with our initials engraved in it. Lovely. So we have two wedding rings, which is a bit gauche, but it's but <laughs> because there's a story, I kind of feel like it's allowed. I suppose also it's not like it's allowed. It's a it's a thin gold yeah. band. Yeah, I mean it's fairly it's fine. And the, the finger underneath is now green as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. So she needs to hide it exactly. So where would you recommend finding good jewellery, especially if someone wants to get into jewellery? It doesn't have to be cheap alternatives. Where would you recommend as a good starting piece? Like something could either be good value or you say you buy this it will last forever it'll always be in style what would be a good piece to start off with a watch i mean a hundred percent a watch that's the best place to start yeah um because i think if you wanted to go down the kind of rings route i think you sort of need to go all in to some extent yeah especially like after Shit's creek because um dan levy kind of looks so amazing with all of his fingers covered and and loads of people are doing that now i've noticed yeah but you never really know how much you like it until you kind of worn it a lot and you sort of you know, worn it with lots of different things and it just kind of, it, you can't be sure whether it works or not. So if you go for a ring, it is a little bit more of a risk. But if you go for a watch, you blend in with everybody. It's a special thing because it will last for a very long time and you can get them for under a grand if you look in the right yeah. places. What kind of brands? So, you know, we, we, as again, we're trying to talk about, I think, you know, both of us have like a tank to start as our to start of our collection. Yep. That's slightly above that price point. Yep. What is that below thousand pound price point that someone can get something quite interesting? You can get a, something called a Baltic, which is a you know it's it is a is a mechanical movement. And I think that's like six hundred pounds. You can get Swatch. Swatch do amazing mechanical watches that are really well priced. There's something called the System fifty one, which is it's called a system fifty one because it has fifty one moving parts on it. It's a mm-hmm. mechanical watch. Uh, and it's £105. Oh, brilliant. So so I suppose the idea of luxury, you know, we're not always talking about a price point. Obviously, there is an aspirational element of it, but yeah. it is also about craftsmanship. And that's basically what we're looking into. And you're talking about, like, the amount of movements going to that watch. Yeah. There's a real craftsmanship that's gone into Yeah, it. I would say certainly the ingenuity to kind of create a watch that you could sell for 105 quid and make a good business out of it is is actually quite impressive because watchmaking is a it, it's a very difficult scientific thing to be doing you know requires sort of anything from physics to engineering you know it's it just it's Incredible a whole precision yeah i mean it is a whole lot of things and so people who who do it are very clever and highly trained people so paying for that's not straightforward so if you're managing to sell a watch that's 105 quid because it, and it has all those components on it then then that's very impressive what would be like a fur par then for watches would you say what are some things to definitely avoid i would say to anyone who wants to wear a nice looking watch 
don't buy a fake one. Yes. Because if you get, I, you know, I live in Brixton and Brixton Village, there's loads of those guys who are selling those watches that kind of have, you know, um, the misspelled brand names, but from, from a distance, <laughs> you could probably pass as it if, you, if nobody knew. Don't do that. You better yeah. not buy an £105 watch that actually yeah. is going to last you. Yeah. Okay, so while we've got you here, you know, you can ask for advice. The Reverso as a watch. Oh, it's one of the greatest watches I've ever made. Okay, fine, it's on the list. The Reverso is 100%. In, um, 100%. Who's it by? It's... Gégé Lecoutre. And they, it is it is it is an absolute stunner. Lovely shape, great sort of great great quirk about it. The sort of you know the fact that you can flip it round. The great history because the whole point of it is that you know in, in the old days when it was sort of the polo players' watch, and so when you play polo and there's a lot of sort of thwacking and you know falling off horses and stuff, you just flip <laughs> flip flip around so it didn't break. Ah. What's your prize possession watch wise? I have a um, Zero Peregrine 1966, which is uh, white gold with a grand fur enamel dial um, and is the great statesman's watch, I, I would say, and really, really beautiful. And so that is my, when I, when I want to be super smart, that's what I go for. Do you have a grail watch? Like, is there one where if money was no I object, don't. you would instantly go out and get this? Uh, no. Uh, you, I, uh, you'd buy Danny's watch back for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So obviously you won covets these things, but I don't actually own any of those, any of the, any of the grill watches. I'm lucky because I'm sort of involved with that whole world. I mean, you know, Way has now sort of moving. He hasn't moved away for the rake. He's still kind of the uh, founder and editorial director and all those sorts of things. But he has started a company called Grail watch and is making all these sort of collaborations with independent watchmakers and they are all absolute stunners of watches mm. but I guess because I sort of feel semi behind the scenes of the whole thing it's sort of you know I can spectate this without necessarily feeling kind of too involved in it and feeling like I'm missing out what do you think has brought on like I feel like there's been a resurgence in watches recently in the same mm. way that there has been in like analog photography and uh, yeah. record players you know like I feel like watches has started to come back is there uh, something that like a physical thing that we have now replaced with the phone so for example notepads briefcases these things that i think you know is very much in the rake realm yeah but potentially you know someone's like well, why do you need that you got you know you got everything on your phone now is there something like that, that you're like i need this to be a big resurgence because you love it so much <laughs> the walking stick with a cigar ashtray isn't, isn't that the greatest thing in the whole world isn't that the greatest good. thing in the whole world I was, I was, yes, up in Yorkshire. I had that this, this sort of because one needs a stick when out in the field, you know. Yeah. I think it's very important. <laughs> yeah. So no, yeah. I uh, the um, that's a good point. Wait. So is the question about the resurgence of watch, or is the question think, about I whether bit, I want a, something else? It's a bit of on? both, you know. Like what what has brought that on, and but also like what do you think that next thing could be or oh, okay, should fine. be? So okay, so the watch thing ultimately is 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 a is, 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 largely because it's a it has a lot of great properties that people are happy to invest with it's fairly fairly subtle there are many different price points it's pretty good at holding value and it's not it's not a huge risk in terms of like your one sort of personal style like you wear a watch that you know it, it, it's it's not going to be it's, it's not a hugely avant-garde thing to be wearing so people feel like if they want to invest their money they're putting it in something that they know will work and goes with their outfits and all that sort of thing I also think that uh, we are all being slightly careful with our money and frivolous expenditure could be attributed to sort of, you know, to, you know, people buying watches could be, could be considered frivolous until you look at sentimentality. You know, people know that if they get a nice watch, they could probably pass it down to somebody, you know, one of their children and stuff. And, and I think people place a lot more sentimentality to things that we think. 
and uh, there's not that many things out there that that we could. I mean, look, even even a record player, like you know, do do you buy it thinking I'm going to pass it down or vinyl record? Oh, you might do actually. I don't know. No, I, I feel like with like hi-fi systems. But I think I think also though, like you said, it, it either holds or appreciates a lot of these things as well. So is there is the investment element of it? Yes. The speculating game for watches is, is I think, it needs to be a sort of an expert's game. I th- sort of think don't put money in the stock market. If you don't really know what you're doing, also don't really put your money into sort of high-value watches unless you really know what you're doing. There is politics behind that too. You know, when you, you know, I, I know a lot of the watch collectors and, you know, there's 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 great competition for who gets the spot. There's great cachet for who gets the, the spot. And I think that anything that is, is, is sort of, whether sort of an exclusivity factor or a um, a sort of trend factor or, or desirability factor or or, or or jealousy factor bleeds down in the market. I think, you know, one way or another, because, you know, you and I can kind of, you know, I could be jealous about your Submariner, although I'm not jealous of it anymore. I'm jealous of the Moose. I think that that's a, 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 it's a beautiful watch. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, you know, it's the size of a, of, of a poster stamp. But yeah. Isn't that super chic and like an elegant and amazing and literally can work for any anything yes and you know i think that 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 people we don't have to talk about hundred thousand pound you know double tourbillon odomar's pga watches yeah. as much as we like them and they're nice to look at there is a very very specific market who are buying that but that doesn't mean that the rest of the market doesn't want to sort of you know talk about all these aspects of tailoring or shoemaker or anything that's sort of handmade that the, the bespoke process that is the major selling point, the major draw, yeah. which is that people love this personalized experience. In, in fact, we are looking at a world where experience, experience says, in individual experiences, this idea of people kind of getting some sort of story to tell out of anything that they're doing is really important to people. So the luxury world is really thriving off that because people will be able to say, look, I've got this and here's a great story behind why I got it, how, how it all how it all came came about and all these sorts of things. I think people do like doing that. In fact, the rake started in 2008 and it was a stupid thing to do because who, <laughs> who starts a luxury magazine during a financial crash? And who starts a magazine anyway if you're an independent? You're not from Condé Nast, you're not from Hearst. You know, it's a stupid thing to do. But by the time the sort of financial crisis had kind of passed and things were recovering, the rake had kind of found its legs and everyone was gravitating to suits and jackets and sort of sartorial things. And so therefore the rake kind of reaped the benefits of that. Is the rake still independently owned then? Yeah. Wow. So it's like, it's really competing against those those juggernauts of like Condé and Hearst then? Uh, I would like to think so, yes. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it, it, I would say it's punching above its weight. It's a great concept and I think that it's, it's niche and I think that niche is really thriving at the moment. Yeah. It's, Success largely lies behind sort of prevailing trends that we accidentally have become the um, the beneficiaries of, in that people really like niche stuff, and and that that's you know if you look at even TikTok or YouTube and stuff, niche, niche, niche. Everything's about niche. Everything's about content. Everything's about niche. And so we've been niche content providers since two thousand eight. Thank God it's moved that way, but it's been a lot of groundwork to get to that point. What you know, Danny asked a great question about like the luxury evolving. How has the rake evolved then in your tenure? Because it's not trend based, and you're like, it just so happens that it, this like cyclical nature of fashion and styles come yeah. around to you. But what have you guys done to sort of move with the times? Because let's face it, like being a print magazine, as yeah. you said, it was mental in 2008. It's even more mental now in some ways. So, yeah, to a large extent, yes. And the, the shock you to know that the rake's actually profitable. The magazine <laughs> is an incredibly successful venture. And the reason is, is because, you know, we, we, we have a subscriber base and we have great advertisers and we, it just, it can't, and we have a small team and it kind of just works. So the numbers add up. How have we changed over the years? We haven't really. For me, my big thing is I want 
somebody, I want you to pick up the Kamel Najani issue and read it and then go back and read an issue from five years ago and basically, I know this sounds weird, but it'd be the same. I want you to kind of feel like the relevance has been maintained and it's sort of, in, and this ability to read a great story, look at a great photo shoot, all these things I want it to feel like it's a reliable source of, of entertainment and escapism. And I don't think you necessarily need to go through some sort of heavy evolution to find that because you, you just want to find great stories and talk about beautiful products and, and tell that story without feeling there needs to be some enormous adjustment every 12 months. I suppose you have sort of hinted at the next cover star, um, but has the rate open up to more of a female audience over the, the sort of like last 10 years then yeah i think you've we, you and know, is that from I, your, is that from your wife's pressure it's not actually <laughs> at all my, my wife is extremely elegant and chic and, and wonderful but no she's 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 also she, she's my greatest sort of cheerleader but also harshest critic and so a lot of actually a lot of my the magazine making is part me i just want my wife to say well done <laughs> but um <laughs> In fact, God, she'll hate me saying this, but I'm going to go for it. <laughs> she, when I, she, when I started at the rake, she was at Esquire. Oh. And I mentioned that I wanted Matt Damon on the cover and she slightly scoffed because she was like... Best of luck. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Because we were, you know, it, we just moved to the, it just moved to the UK. It was just getting started. Like, you don't just sort of get Matt Damon. And I remember when I got Matt Damon, <laughs> I like knocked on her door. Babe. <laughs> <laughs> guess what and she, she was sort of like and great well done that's brilliant and I'm like no 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 but do you remember what you said all those years ago and she didn't of course because like you know everyone's moved on but my my competitiveness holds on to resentments and things like that to mean that I'm going to get her back but that competitiveness I think has played a really big part in, in, in the growth of it and I'm not I'm, I don't want to take credit for it there's been a lot of really amazing people who've totally anonymously been absolutely critical in, 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 the, in the evolution of the rake. Um, I was convinced from day one that the rake could make a big noise and have a big place in the men's magazine world. I was convinced it was missing and, and, and it was needed. It, it was, it, there were so many guys who could connect to that because anyone who likes James Bond just will intrinsically yeah. like the world of the rake because it, and, and, and guys generally like James Bond, like, you know, let's do this. <laughs> and so, you know, there's, and, 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 you know, the rake isn't, isn't really politically led and we don't really, we don't get involved with current affairs to a large extent. And so that's what I mean by, by having a magazine that, 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 that can kind of, you can pick anyone up and it just sort of feels kind of relevant. If you aligned with the culture of the rake, a sort of more old fashioned, more sartorial, where do you go? Because, you know, fashion is fashion and it changed a lot. And there are magazines that cover fashion, but there are some women who just really aren't into that. And luxury is the key because luxury brands are different to fashion brands and they, they, they there is a sort of a little crossover in the Venn diagram but it, it, the, you need to make a distinction between the two and there isn't really a women's luxury magazine in that sense that's dedicated to it yeah there's be a section in Vogue I'm sure there's a section in Harper's and Nell and all those sorts of things but I think that it's worth kind of making an effort to sort of for women to sort of read the rake and think well this is this is aimed at me too if somebody's like you know they've been really interested in what we're talking about. They now know they can go to The Rake, they can go on TikTok and have a look. But, you know, you mentioned YouTube earlier as well, like in these niches. Like, is there sort of, if someone's into what we're talking about, is there like a few stop-off points? So like, you know, we, we were lock, looking at like Kirby Allen yeah, earlier. Yeah, Kirby Allison. Is it Allison, sorry? Allison, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, and huge viewership. Huge. 
Um, Huge. But this is the point, is that these these guys, you know, when he looks at the figures of it, these guys aren't necessarily old guys. They're all ages. Who, and I do, I've done a lot with Kirby, and I'm friends with him. And in fact, when Kirby first came out, he frustrated the hell out of me because I was like, <laughs> we should have been doing this. Video right. is so important to all of this. You're right. There is an audience out there for this. The problem with YouTube is that it's YouTube, and then and it's, it's not like a, it, there's no luxury interface and the same people issue do with look down on it. Yes, uh, well, and we, brand, but brands haven't aligned themselves with it in terms of luck. financially. They're so not investing. We had the same issue. Obviously, Danny was like a a YouTube show. And it was the term YouTuber. It was a dirty word. Correct. I was a presenter. I was an online presenter. You know, we tried to revolutionise that. Not revolution. That sounds so wanky. Um, You know, we we tried to to rebrand it a little bit. You know, they weren't YouTubers. They were presenters on a show. And we tried to make it more premium looking. And we tried to bring in premium brands. We were lucky we worked with brands. Like, you know, we had people like Dior on there. We had like Ralph Lauren. You know, but I think we were one of the very few who were able to make YouTube not seem like YouTube, but like looking very at very Netflix esque. Yeah, but looking at this these sort of niche channels, like there is like a huge audience for it. But because it's got that box around it of YouTube, yeah, it doesn't yeah have that or an advertiser doesn't go, that's premium. Yeah. But I think as well with luxury, there's such a, a gap in the luxury space where obviously you can get fashion YouTubers doing hauls and whatever. But did you ever read the dangerous book for boys? Yes, I've got it in my loo. Yeah, so dangerous book for boys to fly is what I what like what I read growing up. It's everything. Do you know it, George? Yeah, yeah you've, met, uh, you've mentioned it on the pod before, I think. Yeah, so it's, it's stuff like how to make a rope swing, yeah. how to do this, that, and the other. And it's, um, I feel like in the luxury, like either YouTube space, there's so much that men need to know, whether it's something as simple as how to tie a tie. Yeah. And in these kind of things, to have almost like, not quite entertainment, but good production value where it doesn't feel like you're just watching a bloke to kind of have this where it feels like um, what was no no I totally get you yeah there's it, someone who I, had like I on YouTube to fix my I, I learned how to fix my washing machine on YouTube yeah but, you know, it's a book thing it's like things I, my dad never taught me and it yeah. is, I think it was someone got it on TikTok or someone's got it on Instagram and they did a thing called things my dad never taught me and you grow and you learn to like this thing and it's you know like that is it Gentleman's Gazette there is Gentleman's Gazette so yeah. it's like is it Sven on there and stuff like that where it's like you kind of get to know him almost like a celebrity it's you see these people online you feel like you know them and to have like that where you're getting taught the things that you need to know such as how to polish shoes correctly how to tie a tie the importance of shoe trees like i think that's this really... material versus the other it's it's such a, a gap that hasn't been filled by anyone properly yet i think because everyone everyone thinks it's old-fashioned and stupid you know that's yeah. the problem it's not cool anymore but that's that's the point actually guys love being educated i mean that's yeah. just a fact all figures show that guys love being educated and the youtubeization of, of social media is actually quite significant so it's great that people can go on youtube and on the on the tube and when they're when they're when they're going to work and stuff and they can watch videos and things but what you'll see a lot on social media at the moment at least i think i'm right on this is that you don't necessarily find a lot of people posting pictures of their holidays. There is that. But certainly on TikTok, you, most of the accounts on TikTok are blank. Yeah. Because they go on TikTok to find content creators. Yeah. yeah. And it's a similar now with Instagram. Instagram, there's it's loads and loads of reels people making content. And reels aren't that easy to make. They take forever. Videos, <laughs> videos, videos take forever to do. People are looking for content, but they're not looking for like... You know, they don't want to watch Top Gun Maverick on their phone. They want to know about how to tie a bow tie. There is a difference. We, we all need, we all have lots of different needs and we go to the cinema because we want to watch a big film. But we go on our phone because really we want to like find out the next five sort of best dressed celebrities or best shod <laughs> celebrities. I don't know. There's all sorts of things, but that's that's kind of 
where things are going. How do you bring the how do you bring luxury stuff into that space? Very easily. I just did a video last night on TikTok of like the the three types of lapel you need to know. Yeah. And I d I've done a video on but five best dressed men who you may never have heard of. It's got bonkers on TikTok. You know, yeah. you know <laughs> people obviously have all sorts of things to say about it. <laughs> go, go, golly gosh. Everyone just ask where Adam Sandler is, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is funny. You know, my original is not famous. Sorry, they are famous. It is these sort of listicle, interesting things. You know, people are wanting to wanting to absorb and, and, and digest all that kind of content. It's just getting getting presenting it in a way that still maintains it as a luxury yeah. type of communication. It's lucky for me because... I've always got the rake. So I've always got that sort of hard copy magazine that is clearly a luxury product because yeah. it's beautifully printed. The, you know, we have that linen embossing on the, on the, on the cover, you know, and, and, and the great, greatest photographers in the world involved and great models and uh, great story, great writers and all these things. So then when you accompany that with Instagram and, and TikTok, it all just sort of feels like it kind of is okay it's got a, got it's a sort of, it's sort of indicated it. exactly um okay so looking into the future you know we want to talk about the future for yourself what your views are of like publishing and um yeah but then also you know like what the future is for the rake so we'll start with the big question who is your dream cover dead or alive i mean dead would be paul newman so that's an easy one it's the alive one which is quite difficult i think harrison ford or Downey jr yeah i just think they're just superb and I grew up as it's just the biggest Indiana Jones and Star Wars fan, and you know I think that he would just be magnificent. I like this idea of having guys like Harrison Ford on the cover of the Rake, and it all sort of just making sense. People it's like the real of course, of course, of course he's on the cover of the Rake. Yeah, That's, of course he is. Now that we've sorted out the covers, yeah, what's the future of the magazine? Like, where do you see it going? Well, I mean, I mean, the good news is is that you know the the the, the world is, is is shifting a lot more to the you know, environmentalism, sustainability, sort of environmental friendliness and sort of ethical practices. And the good news is about the luxury world is that, well, sorry, men's luxury specifically, is that it is kind of, that all that stuff is baked into men's luxury. If you're making something by hand using the best materials in the world that's ethically sourced um, and milled by great mills that pay, you know, they, they weave sort of tweeds or wools by people who are paid a proper wage and who uh, have hundreds of years of experience in, in creating great quality fabrics. And I remember Stainshade was talking about the fact that apparently uh, fabric is like the second most wasted thing in the world other than plastic and and it's like if all of it is really really high quality sort of stuff you know all that stuff is biodegradable anyway you know we, we you, so when everyone goes and buys a bespoke suit or whatever they are buying stuff that is genuinely environmentally friendly it's sort of low cost it's all kind of you know there's not much of a carbon footprint for a pair of bespoke shoes and things so you know i think i think the world is kind of noticing that and we don't need to sort of have to sort of sh the luxury world doesn't have to shift too much to fit into the world's mindset shifting towards environmentalism so what we've been speaking about all these years everyone's kind of coming to us more and us having to sort of go to them the rakes future doesn't necessarily need to go through some sort of huge evolution to be appealing and relevant to people, I don't think. We see that our growth has, it's probably a reflection of the fact that, that actually uh, it's, it's a fairly good formula. And I, I'm not one for constantly changing rubrics to, to, because I get bored or something. I actually, I'm, I'm fairly consistent in that way. So I like to think that we're gonna do more of the same. We just need to do it bigger. We are a growing brand still, you know, you you still have these behemoth men's titles that 
you know, still are considered the, the biggest in the world. And I sort of feel like whilst the rates come a long way in that, I think I, I think we could go further than that. And I think that we can establish much more of a, a foothold in the in in the industry in that sense. And certainly digitally as well, we can develop on all sorts of things. And I think developing a brand is key too. You have the, the sort of tangible product that consumers buy, i.e. the magazine. But having a brand that is something that people can, can tap, don't, don't have to wait two months to tap into is really crucial. So we were just talking about all that stuff about, you know, tips for you know, yeah. tying your bow tie or, or whatever. You know, the rate needs to be the place that everyone knows to go to for that. Yeah. In a way that I don't necessarily think is currently the case. I think there's still a lot of people to, to reach out to. And so we could just be just more ambitious. Uh, so what, what what I hope you'll see when when we sort of reflect on that five years from now isn't so much the rate, God, the rate, the rate changed to become bigger. It just sort of pushed itself a little further and, and, and engaged with different mediums to... To, to reach to reach people and to be a kind of trusted convincing source so essentially what you're saying is world domination <laughs> but that's practically <laughs> it I, 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 I stop at nothing less <laughs> so what are you kind of seeing from the youth now that excites you so obviously with heritage brands they have a long past history but are there any other new designers or content creators you know like what what excites you that the world the world changes i I learned this thing when I was at university. It was like, as every year that we have technology like quadruples in advancement, so it like quadruples itself every time. So technology is moving faster than us, essentially. Yeah. So like, what is there anything that excites you about like this generation coming through that you know you can? It doesn't have to be related to the rake. It could just be. Yeah. China's a funny one because I've met these young guys who are young, but. God, have they done their their research? And they, you know, whether that's on cigars or clothes, they really know their onions. And <laughs> I think it's very it's, it's very typical. I, I mean, I remember growing, growing when when China sort of started to merge in the market. People were like, oh, you know, they kind of they put Fanta into their their wine and stuff, and you know, they wear loafers on their ears, and you know, it's sort of it was this slightly sort of dismissive tone that we took, but. God, I mean, it's it, it's absolutely not the case. You know, some of these guys are really, really smart and 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 educated when it comes to these kind of things. And what's what's happening also is that there are a lot of younger craftsmen as well, who I think help excite younger people into this sort of world too. Shoemakers, especially, there's some absolutely extraordinary young shoemakers who are, who understand also the kind of digital world and are able to kind of create content and do things that engage all sorts of people. You know, you've mentioned a few brands along the way. One that you've mentioned a few times is like Ralph. Yeah. If anyone's been like, had their interest piqued by this episode or they've always wanted to like, you know, they love your style. Is that the brand where you're like, you go in there, you can buy the stuff and you're going to look great without breaking your bank? Yeah, so Ralph Lauren's total genius. The big trick with Ralph Lauren is that they, he kind of democratized, as it were, style. He could take all those different genres of America yeah. and made them part of the Ralph Lauren family. So he, they took the Wall Street banker, they took the cowboy, they took the, the, the Native American, they took the, 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 the American army, 50s army Americana, the ski guy, the, the, um, the California surfer, the military guys, the, uh, the, the outback sort of the, the, the trekkers, the, the, all of it. And he bring, he's, he's managed to make, something out of it with Ralph Lauren. So whoever you are, 
whatever background you're from, you fit to this extraordinary luxury brand. There's a Ralph Lauren for you. Yes, there is, exactly. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So where else are you shopping as well then? Okay, so uh, I, was, I was worried about this question. <laughs> I don't shop a lot. Yeah. And it's not because I get lots of free clothes. That's not quite, that's not quite actually true. Um, <laughs> I avoid that because that comes with baggage and some level yeah. of expectation. Yeah. And that doesn't really work for me. So Bribery. I, yeah. So I work with Terry a lot. So I have a lot of stuff from Terry. Yeah. I'm extremely lucky that I have that relationship with him. And we're doing currently this absolutely like barnstormingly good aubergine <laughs> fresco wool suit that I'm just so excited about. But every time we do it, you know, I'm entering into a kind of two month project with with this guy. Yeah. So I don't really, I don't really go into shops and sort of buy lots of stuff. You know, I also have, I have a mortgage and two children and my, my <laughs> wife is like very against me buying stuff in general. If I were to, shoes are my absolute favorite thing. So I would go to between the, 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 the three sort of major shoe shops. There's Cleverly, Gaziano and Gerling on Savile Row and Edward Green. Then there's obviously Foster's. I just love shoes. I love shoes. How would someone dress rakish on a budget? What are some items that you really need? You definitely need a navy blazer. Yeah. You definitely need a navy. Just and and I think that that is an that is the kind of staple garment for anybody. And you can go for corduroy trousers, chinos, flannel trousers. You can buy all sorts of things that will all go. Yeah with that navy blazer and so all of a sudden you've got six different outfits or whatever because you know so because trousers are always cheaper than jackets but you kind of get that you, is you, it like a sport coat then yes yeah, yeah. obviously you don't want yeah. it too like fitted because obviously you look a bit bizarre in jeans and a tailored blazer oh okay, yeah depends. so i'm i've you know I mean, uh, ralph look at mr lauren he's, he's able to pull that off yeah i'm calling him mr lauren just because if i say ralph lauren people are going to assume i'm talking about the brand rather than the person yeah and also, I hold him in high, extremely high reverence, of course. <laughs> um, he is, he's a total genius. Again, breaking the rules a little bit. There are, however, people who wear blazers and jeans. It looks horrendous. It yeah. looks horrendous. Um, Partridge. I'm thinking about the ties as well. Yeah, and, and just terrible. So it's just, it's just about sort of understanding proportion, accessorizing, and uh, accompaniments. Like, what are you going to put with it to, to the outfit to kind of make it as sort of stylish as possible? Talking about nice shoes and navy blazers, if you were to immortalise yourself in one outfit for the rest of your life, you know, this is your dream outfit, you can never change it, no budget, what would that outfit be? I would really like to look as good as Fred Astaire does in white tie. He, he was beautifully designed yeah. for tailoring. His, his shape was just so perfect. I'm not that shape. I would love to look that good in it. It's difficult because are we talking about something that I don't currently have? No, no, it could be it could be what you already have or it could be something that's missing from the collection. And I think with you, we're going to need to know the accessories that go alongside it, yeah, what watch you're wearing fine. with it. Okay, so, so head to toe. Well, then I'll, I'll slightly switch it up a little bit and go for my... If Why I were to be that? remembered, if I were to be remembered, this is how I'd like to be remembered wearing. It's weirdly kind of what I'm wearing now. <laughs> and because because the, I, this is sort of my, my uniform, so I would say beautifully polished black loafers, socks that match another part of the outfit, whether that be the tie, the pocket square. I like, I really like these mustard socks and I think they work really well for me and they go really nicely with blue and black, which is sort of a difficult colour to kind of figure out there. Probably flannel trousers because with double pleats, side buckles rather than belt loops and fly front 
turnips, two-inch turnips at the bottom. Then jacket, navy blazer, if or potentially tweed because I just love how tweed looks on me because it's sort of stiffer. And I'm I have I have a military build because I've got I'm like broad-shouldered, and so it kind of can come in nicely. So. Uh, a, a double-breasted blazer with button two show three button stance, which basically means the two buttons here and then the one up above that um, actually is this like the, 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 yeah, so there's this one. So that's what this is. So what's that third button for? Is it just a show? It's a show, hence show three. And then with a five-inch lapel, because I think lapel's extremely important and you know, I just love good lapels. <laughs> um, uh, with a Milanese buttonhole and a flat pockets and a beautiful lining by Rampley and Co who do these amazing kind of sort of those sort of amazing sort of like the kind of imperial paintings like of the Battle of Waterloo uh, they do it on and I'm getting one done at the moment it's absolutely amazing uh, and a, with the lining and the pocket square matching so those two going together uh, shirt uh, I, I really like Turnbull and Asser's collars i think they did work really well for me there's a it's their number three collar that's kind of straight down and it works really nicely for me in my sort of neck length and a tie that matches the pocket square and probably the socks so i'd like ideally the all three i'd say hms victory or something with the sort of you know the slightly kind of mustardy yellowy colours then um, god this is all going quite deep I sort of feel like I'm making <laughs> a bespoke order <laughs> I would say uh, so three buttons on the cuff and then on the on the wrist I would want to wear a first edition Royal Oak which would be completely impossible to get but that's I think that's what I would wear and then uh, for Modemars Piguet I would keep my wedding ring because I love my wife stacked yeah Stacked, I keep myself stacked. <laughs> shirt would be the... So, yeah, sorry. So with the shirt, I would have a... So it'd be a white shirt with uh, French cuffs and cufflinks uh, from probably someone like Wartsky who do, like, sort of serious, like, proper, like, antique things with the most extraordinary provenance. Something like sort of Fabergé or something. Just, uh, like, jade cufflinks or something amazing. Nice. Maybe Asprey or something to do that as well. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, go full on. And then... Tie. I really like Rubenacci's ties. They're not sort of stiff. They're kind of they 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 are really nice sort of flannelly ties that actually work really, that I like wearing a lot. And a uh, a Nick Fouquet hat. I don't fit. I don't suit hats, but I'd love to be able to suit hats. Yeah. And then I suppose the last part accompaniment of this outfit, left hand. What cigar are you holding? Sigler Six Grand Reserva by Cohiba. So so. It was. It's regardless of the greatest cigar ever made. That's the one that's worth two thousand pounds a stick. Oh, so so you, you have two two in your hand then. Yeah, well, I was in my pocket. <laughs> one in each finger. Well, accessories-wise, I probably carry a cigar case and a backgammon board. When what else? Yeah. So with the, you can't. The good thing about cigars actually is that it comes with lots of accessories. So you need a cutter, a lighter. So my lighter from Dupont. A cutter, Ooh. Yeah. Cutter from Ellie Bleu. Yeah. <laughs> Fully kitted out. I love this answer. And just, <laughs> just something that you said there that actually just, it resonates with me and it resonates actually when we spoke to a lot of other guests is the people we get on this podcast, 
is whether it's like streetwear or whether they're wearing like Rick Owens or whether they're wearing like they're more of a sartorial leaning is actually we're all just a little bit nerdy and a little bit lame <laughs> and just like all the accessories like how excited you, when you said about it comes a lot of accessories me and him both just went Ooh, like yeah, what yeah. like and yeah. I think that's what's that's what's lovely is it doesn't matter about um the fashion it's that we're all like really into something yeah. and have a passion about something and that's what's nice about the podcast that we like doing is like you hear about people's passion. There you go. Thank you very much for joining us, Tom. This has been an absolute pleasure. Potentially my favourite podcast we've done. Yes. Yeah, oh no, stop! That's it can't possibly be. I, I've I've heard the others. <laughs> well, cool. genuinely, because it's like for a different, like fresh perspective on stuff as well. Like I feel like I've learnt so much, and it's made me want to dress more sartorially day to day as well. I guess. So I hope it's. It'll obviously come across this way in the edit. You're very, very kind to have had me over. Thank you very much. Hoping you've had fun as well. I've had a great time. It's been a blast. And then now, I guess uh, this is the end. Thank you very much for listening. (laughs) That's such a morbid end. (laughs) Can you take it up a little bit? Now we draw to a close. I'm going to finish and say we'll see you for Cigar soon. I'm excited. Perfect. Can't wait. Happy days. (laughs) Great stuff. Thanks so much. Parting hard with you, sir. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening. Catch you guys in a bit.